How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Bearded Ecclesiologian podcast. Episode number 11. That, my friends, is a one with another one right next to it. We are cruising. We are moving. This, of course, is the podcast in which we talk about all things church because we need more teaching about the church and not less. I am here. You are here. My beard is here. My Coke Zero, nice and cold, is here as well to help me through this podcast. Let's do, all right? Hey, let's do, let's do it. What we've done the past several episodes, and let's get into our handy dandy way back machine, as Jimmy James from News Radio called it, once again. And this time, let's let's zoom past the Reformation. Let's go even further back. Let's go all the way back to the 4th century, and come in close. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you about this guy, and his name was Arius. We don't like him, okay? And you'll find out why here in a minute. Arius was a presbyter in Alexandria who challenged his bishop, who happened to be named Alexander, Alexander, Bishop of Andrea, how about that, regarding Alexander's teaching on whether the father and the son possess equal eternity in other words Arius challenged Alexander of Alexandria saying are you sure that the father and son are equal in eternity are you sure that Jesus has existed forever and is equal with the father yeah yeah that's what he said Arius affirmed a heresy can you imagine that said that there was once a time when Christ was not. Yikes, am I right? His understanding of John 3.16, you know John 3.16, right? They hold it on a sign um, at football games, right? That's why it's famous. Uh, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Arius read John 3.16 and said, begotten meant made or created so begetting was equivalent with creating or making so he says he said he's very dead now but he said uh that jesus christ was not derived from the substance of the father but as the jesus was the first and highest of god's creation and became the instrument of all the rest of creation so he does not believe that he did not believe again he's very very dead uh he did not believe that Jesus had existed in eternity's past. But it's not funny. I don't know why I laughed. Uh, this is very serious heresy. Okay. Um, and this teaching, as you can imagine, was received very poorly. Okay. Alexander secured a condemnation of Arius and his teachings at a synod in Alexandria around 317 or 318. We're not uh, make sure of the exact date. But he subsequently... After this condemnation, which rightfully they're like, yes, Arius, you are very wrong. This is heresy. Jesus has existed forever from eternity's past. He is equal with the Father. He is eternal as well as the Father. He is not created, not made. Um, they condemned him. They sent letters to other bishops concerning excluding Arius from fellowship. So they're like, don't let this dude in your church to teach and corrupt your people. They want to warn others about Arius and his dangerous teaching, okay? The dispute came to the ears of the emperor, Constantine, and we're going to skip a few steps here for the sake of time. If you want to know more, you, there's certainly many, many books, many websites where you can 
uh, read about this. This is a very popular, important thing in church history. Okay, Emperor found out about this beef, and he called a meeting of all the bishops who were able to uh, come to his royal palace at Nicaea. Okay, important word, Nicaea, name, place, in May 325, another very important date in church history. And so reported, this is pretty fascinating, that between 250 and 300 bishops responded to this, which is very impressive because, remember, this is a fourth century we're talking about here, <laughs> okay? These guys, they, 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 they couldn't get in their Toyota Camry, right, and road trip it to Nicaea from all across the empire while they jammed out to Zeppelin and Floyd. You know what I mean? Imagine living in a time when there's no Zeppelin and Floyd. Horrible, Okay. But this is very impressive, 250, 300 people in horses and wagons and whatnots. Uh, well, legend has it, okay, that there was a certain fella also at Nicaea in 325 by the name of Nicholas. Nicholas. Now, this is what legend says. There's not a ton of information, accurate information about our friend Nicholas, who we like. Okay, Arius, remember, if you're taking notes, we don't like him. Nicholas we like, okay? Legend says that Nicholas was raised by the Bishop of Patria after Nicholas's parents had tragically died during an epidemic. Though his parents had left him a small fortune, old Nick dedicated himself to the church and was actually eventually made the Bishop of Myra, okay? M-Y-R-A. He was known for his generosity and charity. In fact, tradition says he gave away all of his inheritance, all of his inheritance to the dowry of three girls so they would not be sold into prostitution. You see why we like this guy? During the persecution of Diocletian, he was also arrested, this is reported, and tortured, though eventually released when the persecution died down and he refused to recant Christ. We like Nicholas. Tradition tells us that he accepted Constantine's offer uh, to the bishops, of course he was Bishop of Myra, uh, throughout Rome to attend the Council of Nicaea, to decide what to do about the heresy of Arius. Uh, Nicholas had already been a staunch opponent of Arianism, okay? Uh, St. Methodius says this of Nicholas. Thanks to the teaching of St. Nicholas, the metropolis of Myra alone was untouched by the filth of the Arian heresy, which it firmly rejected as death-dealing poison. Come on, St. Methodius. Don't hold back. Tell us how you really feel. Am I right? So here we are at the Council of Nicaea, an incredibly important event that would help to shape Christian orthodoxy to this day. In one corner, you had, ding, 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 Arius, who was teaching overt heresy, denying the eternality of Christ, denying Christ's equality with the Father. And in the other corner, you had jolly old Nick, who affirmed strongly the eternality, preexistence, and divinity of Jesus, as well as Jesus' equality with the Father. Uh, you also had hundreds of other bishops there. Nick and Arius were by no means <laughs> the main attraction, okay? I just wanted to add some flair. But it was here at Nicaea that there is a legend. Lean in close. You'll like this, okay? There's a legend that absolutely cannot be confirmed whatsoever, okay? There is high probability this is not true, but there's a legend. You may have seen some of the memes that go around every December. Um, we can't confirm this, that Nicholas actually slapped or punched Arius in the face because of his claims that Christ was not divine. Can you believe that, you guys? 
Here's a couple examples of some memes uh, that you'll see every year. There's one with the icon of Nick that says, Deck the Halls, try Deck the Heretic. <laughs> that's that's pretty funny, I guess. Uh, another one says, I like this is this is my favorite that I see every year. I came here to give presents and punch heretics. And I'm all out of presents. So, anyways. Uh, over time, Nicholas's legend grew and he was venerated by the Catholic Church. That's why he's a saint, according to the Catholic Church, who declared December 6th as his feast day, okay? Nicholas was known as a gift giver, and he would allegedly, another legend was that he had put gold coins in the shoes of people who left them out. So on his feast day, kids began to leave their shoes out, and their presents would put coins in them, okay? His legend grew so big, in fact, that it is said that Nicholas was represented by medieval artists more than any other saint except for Mary. Why was Nicholas so famous? Kevin DeYoung says this to that question. Quote, it's impossible to tell fact from fiction, but this is some of the legend of St. Nicholas. He was reputed to be a wonder worker who brought children back to life, destroyed pagan temples, saved sailors from death at sea, and as an infant, nursed only two days a week and fasted the other five days. Moving from probable legend to possible history, Nicholas was honored for enduring persecution. It is said that he was imprisoned during the empire-wide uh, persecution under Diocletian and Maximian. Upon his release and return, the people flocked around him. Nicholas, confessor, St. Nicholas has come home, end quote. Eventually, the tradition of St. Nick went from his giving of coins to simply giving gifts in general. Good kids would get good gifts from St. Nicholas, while bad kids would be punished depending on where the holiday was celebrated. In highly Catholic parts of Europe, St. Nicholas became a deterrent to erring young children. In Germany, he was often accompanied by Nicht Rupert, farmhand Rup, farmhand Rupert, who threatened to eat misbehaving children. Now, this, this kind of sounds a lot like Dwight on The Office. Remember his Belschnickel episode who wants to know if you're impish or admirable? Are you impish or admirable? And if you're impish, he'll strike you with that weird bundle of sticks, you know? Anyways, in Switzerland, St. Nicholas threatened to put wicked children in a sack and bring them back to the Black Forest. This is so dark. In the Netherlands, St. Nicholas's helper would tie them in a sack and bring them back to Spain. In parts of Austria, the priest, dressed up in Christmas garb, would visit the homes of naughty children and threaten them with rod beatings. Now, the cult of St. Nicholas virtually disappeared in Protestant Europe with the exception of one country, and that's the Netherlands. The Puritans had done away with Nicholas and banned Christmas altogether. But the Dutch held on to their tradition and brought it with them to the New World. In the Netherlands, Sint Nicolaus was contracted to Sinterklaas. According to Dutch tradition, Sinterklaas rides a horse and is accompanied by his helper Zwart Piet, or Black Pete. Many people considered Black Pete a racist stereotype, of course, derived from slavery, although others claim he is black because he goes down the chimney and gets a face full of soot. At any rate... It's easy to see how the traditions of Santa Claus developed over time in America. One of the more influential contributions to our current 
Christmas tradition is due to the 1823 poem called Twas the Night Before Christmas. I don't think a lot of people realize how much that poem shaped our tradition of Santa Claus. Guys, guys, why am I telling you all this? Okay, well, for one, it's Christmas season, all right? And this is just a cool story to tell about where we got Santa Claus and the myths surrounding him, right? Now you could tell all your homies where, hey, man, you know where Santa Claus comes? You know when you're sitting around Santa, uh, Christmas uh, dinner, maybe there's a long conversation or it's awkward and all you hear is people like chewing and clanging things together. You go, hey, I was listening to, uh, you break the silence, right? Break the uncomfortable, awkward silence. You go, hey, you know, uh, I was listening to this podcast that you guys should listen to too. This handsome, bearded fella hosted and he talks about the church and how we should treat it. And he was talking about Santa Claus and where he came from. Let me tell you how uh, we got the legend of Santa Claus. And let me tell you about the real St. Nicholas. All right, let me drop some knowledge on you guys. Let me drop you some knowledge. And so that's a cool story. But I'm telling you this mainly because this ties to uh, ecclesiology. Which is what this podcast is about. I mean, this is a podcast. Am I right? What Santa Claus shows us is that we should be like him. Ooh. <laughs> In how we treat the church. Are you ready for this? Here's another legend that Kevin DeYoung tells. This story probably isn't true, he says, but should be. When Nicholas was a little boy, he would get up early to go to church and pray. Which, hey, you should do that too. One morning, the aging priest had a vision that first that the first one to enter the church the next day should be the new bishop of Myra. When Nicholas was the first to enter, the old priest, obeying the vision, made the young boy bishop right on the spot. But before he consecrated Nicholas, the priest asked him a question. Who are you, my son? According to tradition, the child whose legend would one day become Santa Claus replied, Nicholas the sinner. Not bad for a little boy, comments the young. We should be like Santa in our treatment and approach to the church. No, we shouldn't wear weird furry red suits, which, I mean, if you want to, you can, I guess. There's no shame in your game. We should not watch people sleep, keep a list of people we think are good or bad, or have people sit on our laps at the mall. That is very weird. What we should do is approach the church with a spirit of giving rather than receiving. The real Nicholas was interested in giving and at his own expense. What I'm afraid has happened is that our de facto mode, our default mode toward the church is one of the recipients of Santa Claus's gifts rather than being like Santa in the way we should give of ourselves to our fellow members and the church. A plague on American churches is the consumeristic approach to the church. We've talked about this some, and we'll talk about it more in the future for sure. Our default posture, and you know this, in our culture we've been conditioned this way, is take, 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 rather than as a member of the body like 1 Corinthians uh, 12 vividly portrays. We expect our wish lists to be met, perhaps to be platformed ourselves, to have our favorite programs, to have this or that, or else we will declare it a bad Christmas or unworthy of our time. The most miserable church members are almost always those who expect to get and really aren't all that interested in giving of themselves, of being a member who serves and edifies others. 
who doesn't care about their desires and preferences. They just want what they want, and if they don't get what they want, they'll find a place where they will. That's the consumeristic posture we've talked about. That's the posture of that spoiled kid who gets the gift on Christmas morning that they don't want, so they chuck it, and they yell at their parents, and their parents are like, oh, Timmy, uh, don't worry, we'll fix this. You know. Instead, what if we're like, I'm going to be like St. Nicholas and give of my time and energy and talents. I'm going to pray for the church. I'm going to arrive early at the church and expect nothing in return as long as I can edify others and build Christ's church. What if we had that posture instead? Is that crazy? What does Philippians 2 say? It says this, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, in other words, do you have those things? Do you have encouragement of Christ? Do you have consolation of love? Do you have fellowship of the Spirit? Do you have affection and compassion? Then what should you do? Paul tells us, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We mentioned this one last time we met on our part two of the Reformation. That Philippians 2, I mean, if all you had was Philippians 2, you would know that the consumeristic posture towards the church is wrong. It's unbiblical. It's unbecoming of a Christian. It does not glorify Christ. Imagine a church full of people like what... Philippians 2, just obeying Philippians 2. You wouldn't have to worry if you were being going to be edified because everyone else is worried about building you up as you are focused on building them up. Do you see how that works? That's how a body functions according to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. You don't have to focus on yourself at all because others are doing that. But they aren't focusing on your preferences. They're focusing on your needs and your growth in the Lord. Because here's the thing. The church you want isn't always the church you need. There's a big difference, right? Another way we could be like Santa Claus towards the church is by defending orthodoxy. Nicholas is reported to have been someone who affirmed what we came to know as the Nicene Creed, which you should read, which affirmed the eternality of Jesus and his equality with the Father. It stated that Jesus was not created but has existed forever. And while we should not slap heretics in the face, we should know orthodoxy to the point that we could spot errors. You see, no one is saying everyone should be a PhD in theology, like sight reading Hebrew, carrying around a Greek New Testament. But it is up to every member to be ever growing in knowing good doctrine. And it is the job of the members to defend orthodoxy and protect the church's doctrine when false teachings arise. That's right. I said it's partly the job of the members to do these things. How can we fight against false teaching if we don't recognize it, right? And how can we recognize it if we don't know what right doctrine is? Of course, elders and pastors must protect against false teachers and wolves, but it is also the job of the church and its members because what happens when some false wonky doctrine is being taught in Sunday school class or a group the pastor isn't frequently able to be in or hear? What happens when the false teacher is coming False teaching is coming from the pastor or another leader. The members have a responsibility to see it and protect one another and the church from false doctrine. 
This is why the bulk of New Testament epistles are written to churches. And it is the churches who are constantly being called to defend right doctrine and against false teachers. They aren't addressed. The, most of the letters in the New Testament are not addressed to elders, but to the church as a whole. And what are they exhorting to uh, the church to do? To know good doctrine. It's teaching right doctrine. It's telling, warning against false teachers arising and uh, tickling ears. And even the letters of Revelation, Jesus is saying what? He's telling the churches to protect against these false teachings and false actions. I'd encourage you, friend who's listening to this, grow in right doctrine. Get in the Word. Stay in the Word. Find out who is teaching good Orthodox stuff, writing good Orthodox works, and listen to them. Be careful what you read and listen to, okay? Just because a book is labeled as Christian, just because it, it claims to be Christian or is sold on a Christian site or whatever, doesn't mean it's Orthodox, okay? I promise. That does not automatically mean it's Orthodox. Look at the credentials on the back. Are you talking about somebody who has an is an expert in uh, that thing that they're writing about, that doctrine they're writing about, that topic they're writing about? Are they a, a New Testament scholar, Old Testament scholar? Um, care about that stuff. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you listen to. Just because labeled Christian doesn't mean it's good. Um, but find good teaching, find good writings, listen to them, read them. Hey, like this one, right? Am I right? You're listening to an Orthodox podcast right now. And Hey, memorize the Nicene and Apostles Creed and work, work them into your quiet time and read the Athanasian Creed and learn the language of Orthodox Trinitarian thought. Then go and defend Orthodoxy like Santa wants you to. All right. One last way you should be like Santa is grow a beard. Okay. Be like Santa, grow a beard. But there's one way you shouldn't be like Santa in your approach to the church. Okay. Santa bases how he treats children on merit, right? He sees you when you're sleeping because he's a weird peeping Tom. He knows when you're awake because he's a weird peeping Tom. He knows if you've been bad or good. So just be good for goodness sake, right? That song is wretched, by the way. But he he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for good. You want presents? You tell your kids, like, you want presents from Santa? Then you better get your act together, homie, right? Um, he has this weird list, and some are nice and some are naughty. Some are impish and some are admirable. If you are good, you get good. If you're bad, you get bad. Praise God that this is not how Jesus treats us. Every person in the world is on the naughty list. Okay, that's the bad news. We are, here's the good news. We are saved by grace alone. We have merited damnation, but God saw us and loved us and saved us according to Christ's merit alone. That's why he came in flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, right? Pleased with man as man to dwell. And, hey, he came so that God and sinner could be reconciled. He made that move. It's according to Christ's merit alone because we have no positive merit to commend to God. This is how we should treat the church and fellow members. Santa bases on merit. Christ does not be more like Christ in this aspect. Our love for the church and one another should not be conditional. It should be unconditional. The reason consumerism is dangerous is because it approaches the church as a product provider. And the relationship is thus built on an exchange of goods and services. That is so wrong. 
It is like a contract rather than what it should be, which is a covenant. This is why churches must remember the attractional model is a failure and is incapable of creating disciples. What you win them with is what you win them to. If your reason for going to a church is because it has X program or X class or X activity, if that thing ever gets withdrawn, what will you do? You'll bail because your reason for being there is gone, right? Your love and attendance is thus based on the condition of merit. I give the church X, it must give me Y in exchange. That's no way to be. And you know as well as I do that that's not biblical. Further, you should love and forgive unconditionally because you have been loved and forgiven unconditionally. The church shouldn't have to merit your love, right? You should love your brothers and sisters of in Christ at the church because of Christ. Forgive them because God in Christ forgave you. Church should be a place where we are free to be messes and our love for one another is not conditional. It's unconditional and we navigate the storms together. We don't need people to prove their love for us or prove anything for us to love them back. We should reflect Christ in our unmerited love for the church saying, guess what? If this church is is, is praying the word, preaching the word, teaching the word, reading the word, and it's orthodox in its doctrine, preaching Christ and him crucified, I'm staying and I'm loving and I'm giving of myself. That's the posture of the church. That's what Christ wants you to be. So this Christmas and all year round, let's be like Nicholas, except, of course, in that one area that I mentioned. All right. Quote of the week. This is from um, our friends Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen, who wrote a little book called Rediscover Church. I've mentioned it before. But here's a quote from a condensed version that they wrote um, for Crossway's website. Um, But I recommend that book. I did finally have it and get it and look through it. And it is excellent as I expected. Here's the quote of the week from uh, this post. Quote, we're all trained today to leverage institutions such as family, work, and school to achieve our personal goals of attention and acceptance. Once we get what we want... Or the institution asks us for something we don't want to give, we could discard it and move on to another target. Get a new job, get a new family, get a new school. But personal growth doesn't usually work that way. Generally, relationships don't change you for the better if they don't challenge you at your worst. Consider, who are the most important people in your life? Do they only affirm you in every decision you make? Or do you trust that they will love you no matter what and love you enough to tell you the truth? Relationships with family members and friends are forged through thick and thin. They will stand behind you at your best, stand next to you at your worst, and stand in front of you at your most vulnerable. That's the kind of church we must rediscover. Mm, That's a good one. That's a good one. Well, I hope you enjoyed episode number 11 of the Bearded Ecclesiologian podcast. You know what you should do? You know. Say it. Go ahead. Do your boy solid. Subscribe. Give the podcast five stars on the Apple podcasting doohickey, the app. Give it five stars because you know what that will do? That will help others see this podcast. And you should tell your homies 
Christmas is coming up. You're going to be around the table. You just mention, hey, I know this great podcast. We need more teaching about the church, not less. Listen to this podcast. I'll send it to you. All right? Tune into future episodes where we will cover all things church. If you have a question about ecclesiology, I would love to hear it. Or if you have a suggestion about a topic you want to hear in future episodes, hit me with it. All right? Send them to me. That's what this podcast is for, to help you learn more about the church, not less, and have good ecclesiology. And let's venture through this together. There's a couple ways you can get your podcast or your question uh, or suggestion to me. If you look in the show notes, there's a link there where you can send a voice memo with your question or suggestion. I'm going to assume you want to remain anonymous unless you mention otherwise. Or you could go to kvpaxton.com and perhaps uh, we will cover it in a future episode. If you go to kvpaxton.com, you go to the link that says contact us, click that, fill out the form, and it will get to me. Thank you so much again for tuning into this podcast. I hope you enjoyed this Christmas-themed episode, and we will see you next time when we explore more about the church because we need more teaching about the church, not less. See you next